At this time, we will dismiss the children of the Children's Church. You see Miss Amy over here to my left and your right. And uh, what a blessing it is to have a great, great children's ministry. While she's standing there, I told y'all last week that they had a new record for their Awana ministry. Uh, it would have been two Wednesdays ago. Uh, they had 63 that, that night, and then she shared with me this week, they had 64 this week. Uh, so we got a new record again, so continuing to celebrate the fact that uh, we have lots of kids that are coming, and it's a blessing. Uh, it is a blessing to be able to share the word with you this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, so if you want to go ahead and start turning there, you can. You know, watching successful people, you might think that money is what matters most in life. Why else would they continue to work so hard after they've made millions of dollars? And it's a pretty fair assessment. Money is the common bond of every person who seems to have it all. But some people may have other things that are more important than money. In the words of a successful actor named Jim Carrey, he said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they will know that it's not the answer. It's really an interesting statement because I don't agree with him on much, but I do agree with him on that statement. So what matters most to people who have it all? Many of the most successful people in the world were surveyed, and these are the top four answers, the most common responses that were given. The first one was health. This includes both mental and physical health, at least as they listed it. As one who has found completion in Jesus Christ, I would also add spiritual health, mind, body, and soul. But this answer makes a lot of sense. Imagine having millions of dollars in your bank or being able to successfully complete all the tasks that you dreamed of, yet at the end you find yourself physically unable to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Your health is incredibly important, and I think that they definitely got that right. The second thing that they listed was family. Now this can include those who are related to you through blood or through marriage, or this may simply be those who have been embraced as family, those who have been there for us in our most difficult days, and we treat them like family. Every time I deal with a family, as they grieve, I am reminded that we need to cherish our time with our family because we may not have it for as long as we would like. The third thing that they listed was purpose. You may end up being a millionaire or a billionaire, but the question that will weigh most heavily on you as your life fades away will not be how much money am I leaving in my bank account, but rather what kind of difference did I make with what I had? Did you fulfill your purpose? And there is a happiness factor that will flow out of this as well. You may go through difficulty. But if your life is serving a purpose, you can continue to press on because there's value in it. And I will tell you that I have found my purpose in Jesus Christ. The fourth and the final thing that they included was time. We all know that time is limited here on this earth, but we tend to never think of these things. We spend our days like we have all the time in the world. 
Some people may go from one extreme to the other. Some might tend to procrastinate all day, saying that they'll make time tomorrow to make that phone call, or they'll visit their family the next holiday season. They'll make time later on. I'm still young. I don't have to worry about what's happening down the road. Others on the other end of the spectrum, they work all day trying to provide for their family. And because of that, they're missing all the important things that go on within their homes. They miss their kids' first steps. They miss the first day of school or their high school graduation. The key is sometimes to find good balance. Now, I think I could probably stop right here and do a sermon just on those four things because the truth is those really successful people got those four things right. But that's not where I want to go today. My question to you is what is important to you? Today, as we look at our second parable, we see that the disciples eagerly were seeking for something that was important to them. Turn with me, if you would, in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Again, just like last week, this is all leading up to the parable which Jesus will share. But it gives us an idea of the context that we're dealing with. Just verse 1 of Luke chapter 11 says this. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, what immediately catches my attention is the fact that Jesus was eager to teach his disciples many things. In fact, it would seem as if his entire life was about teaching lessons to them. He is, after all, their rabbi, their teacher. But did you notice that they actually had to ask him to teach us to pray? He didn't gather them together and say, well, hey guys, come on, everybody, listen up. I want to teach you how to pray today. Instead, they asked him, teach us to pray. Now, the verse reveals that there are two things in play that likely spurred on this request, this conversation. First, they have apparently observed Jesus praying because he was already doing it here. It's not unusual for that to be the case. They often observed his times of prayer. But there were also many occasions when Jesus would just withdraw from all of them for a time of private prayer. My guess is that he often told them, this is what I'm going to do. Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000? We say 5,000. It was probably closer to 10 to 12,000. Usually when you count the 5,000 in biblical times, you're only counting the men. There were also likely women and children that were there. It's recorded in all four of the Gospels. In Luke chapter 9, just two chapters prior to where we are today, it tells us immediately after this miracle that Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. 
And in John chapter 6, it simply states that Jesus went off by himself to pray. Now, this is an interesting thing because it says that it happened in different ways. Although the description is different, what it reveals is that they often were very much aware of Jesus' prayer patterns. But the other thing that verse 1 tells us is that it was normal for rabbis to teach their followers how to pray. They note that John the Baptist has already taught his disciples how to pray, and so they want Jesus to teach them how to pray. And honestly, I don't know that they could have gone to a better source. Jesus is the one. He will hear their prayers as well. So it just makes sense that he would be the one to teach them how to pray. Now, it should be noted that they've already been given the opportunity to do some incredibly amazing things. Remember last week, as we talked just one chapter earlier, we talked about the fact that 72 disciples had been sent out to perform incredible miracles. And two chapters earlier, again in chapter 9, before that, it was just the 12 disciples who had gone out, coming back with amazing reports of signs and wonders which they had performed. But it would seem that they longed for something more than just power. Here they are, and they are asking for Jesus to teach them to pray. They longed for intimacy with their Father in heaven. Teach us, Lord, to pray. We want to speak with the Father just as you speak with the Father. May that also be our prayer today. May we have a heart like that which is described in Jeremiah 29, 13, where we are told that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Maybe you've accomplished great things. Maybe you've done good things. But the greatest thing that we could ever have is intimacy with our Father, to be able to know God and who he is in Isaiah 55, 6, we are instructed to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. These disciples are saying that we want to do that too. Now, the Lord was there with them. The king of kings was in their presence, and they're asking, teach me how to pray. You may say, well, why didn't Jesus just teach them how to pray? Why'd they have to go ask him? They already had the presence of the Lord with them. They may not have recognized exactly what this was. They had the presence of the Lord with them. But there would come a day that Jesus would be gone. And when that day came, they would need to be able to reach the Father. So Jesus eagerly goes into a brief lesson on prayer. This is quite similar to what is recorded in Matthew chapter 6, which most of you are likely a little more familiar with. But I would suggest that getting this word for word isn't as important as it is to understand the model of prayer that is here. It's a recognition of God's greatness and our need for him is a recognition that he is the one who provides for our every need. And it is a recognition that forgiveness is a gift from God 
that ought to become a part of who we are. Listen to the prayer that Jesus offers in front of his disciples, in many ways as a model to them. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, I know that you've learned it from Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, and it sounds just a little bit different when we say it typically from Matthew 6, but it is the same prayer that is modeled here. So, as we head into this parable, remember that it's specifically connected to the desire of these disciples to know how to pray. Listen to the parable beginning. In verse 5, and I'll break it into two parts for you as well. Beginning in verse 5, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up. And give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, I got to tell you, we don't talk about this parable very often. Last week, I gave you a parable that everyone was probably familiar with. We talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows about the Good Samaritan. How many of you even know what this parable is called? Actually, I don't. It, there is no title. There's no subscript in my Bible to tell me what this is about. But Jesus answers these disciples question about how to pray by giving them a model and then demonstrating through this parable some important truths. We'll pause right here at this point in the story to address the fact that there is apparently value in persistence. I'm not talking about babbling, the idea that you can say more words and somehow sound more spiritual. Actually, someone mentioned that to me this morning and didn't even know that it was in my sermon notes. The fact is, there are many times people want to seem very spiritual just because they use a lot of words when they pray. Or maybe they sound really, really intelligent when they pray and really spiritual, even speaking in the King James. But the way they talk and live their lives outside of their prayer may not be the same. Sometimes we do nothing more than babble for appearances, and somehow we think that God might be more likely to respond to our request as such. As a professor, I used to call this fluff. Students would turn a three-page paper into a 12-page paper that really only needed about a half of a page because they never really read the assigned reading. The idea was that if they said enough other unrelated stuff, that I might not realize that they were just faking it. Sometimes we do that in prayer, where we know that we hadn't talked to the Lord in the last week, two weeks, however long it is, and we think that I can pray more and longer, and somehow he'll think that I was pure of heart when I came before him. But the truth is, he knows us better than we even know ourselves. Well, you're not going to be able to fake it with God. He knows what is in your heart. 
He knows what is also weighing so heavily on you. So as you pray, just say it. He gave us a few verses there at the beginning. It's three verses, and that's his model of prayer. That's not a long prayer. It's not babbling, but it is persistence. My mind immediately takes me to another of Jesus' parables. It's found in Luke chapter 18. It's often referred to as the parable of the persistent widow or the parable of the unjust judge. Two different titles for the same parable. Listen to it for a moment. Again, in Luke 18, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the idea here is that it's okay for us to ask more than once. In fact, at the beginning of this parable, it tells us the message which Jesus is trying to communicate, that they should always pray and not give up. And maybe you wonder why an individual would ha have to ask more than once. I mean, if I've already asked once, shouldn't that be enough? It would be like telling your wife that you love her on your wedding day and never saying it again. Because well, I already told her once, doesn't she know? Shouldn't she know? Absolutely she should know, but you probably should say it more than once. Well, why would I have to ask the Lord for something more than once? Listen, sometimes the answer will be yes. Sometimes the answer from the Lord will be no, and sometimes the answer will be not yet. It may be that the circumstances need to change before God can say yes, and it may be that we need to constantly be reminded that it is only the Lord who can make the impossible take place for us. That's why James tells us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. A fervent prayer is one that will not take no for an answer. It will not stop because they didn't hear the answer today. He or she keeps asking. In the parable that I just read to you, we have a mother who keeps asking an unjust judge, and he doesn't want to be bothered. But finally, just to shut her up. Now, that's a terrible thought, but that's the image that you get here. Finally, just to make her leave him alone, he yields to her request. Well, consider the fact 
that we don't have an unjust judge that we cry out to. Our God is faithful and he is just. He is wise beyond our imagination, but he also desires to meet the needs of his people. He is exceedingly generous to you and to me. And as he sees what is heavy on our hearts, who knows, but he might respond to meet that need. We know that he does long to meet our needs, by the way. The scriptures are very clear on that. In fact, he welcomes us as we come before him. The word that is used in this passage, in our original passage here in Luke 11, was audacity. It talked about the shameless audacity. It refers to the boldness which the person has come seeking food for their guests. They come with a boldness. Culturally speaking, the individual would have known that it was an inconvenience to one who is being asked to help. It's late at night. He's probably already in bed. His family is already in bed. They would have known that a typical family in that day and time all lived in one room. They all slept in the same room together, and typically the father slept closest to the door in order to protect his family. If someone were to come in, he could be there to protect them. The food and the other household needs were further away from the door, and in order for that father to be able to get to those food elements or whatever else they needed, he would actually have to step over his children in the middle of the night. How many of y'all struggle to see in the middle of the night? I do. We had a young man for our flag football team this year. Uh, I'm sorry, actually for our basketball team this year. He was walking in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and he stubbed his toe. And in doing so, he broke his pinky toe, ended up missing half of our season. My guess is that he's not the only one to have stubbed his toe in the middle of the night. And you know what? We may stub our toes on a table or a, a, a dresser. What happens when you start stepping on people in the middle of the night? Well, that's what this father is facing as he's being asked to provide for someone else. It's very inconvenient. It is a big ask. It's where we find the audacity in this passage, the boldness. Well, we too can come with a sense of audacity and boldness. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We come before the Lord with the recognition that no request is too big or too small. No request is too inconvenient for our God. Let me add just one final thought before we move on to the rest of the parable here in Luke 11. In fact, this will be a good way to kind of transition into that next part of this story. The reason we ask so fervently with persistence is because we know that our God is the greatest hope. How many of you have prayed for God to change a circumstance and he seems to have not answered your request right away. You don't have to raise your hands. How many of you have prayed for a job situation? 
or prayed for a family to be restored or prayed about some financial problem? How many have prayed for a loved one who is enslaved by sin or addiction and needs to find freedom, needs to be made right with God? Don't stop praying. You didn't get that answer today, but that doesn't mean you need to stop. Don't stop praying. Ask again. And if he doesn't seem to answer today, ask again tomorrow. It's okay to ask more than once. Now, there may come a day that the answer turns out to be an absolute no. King David had such a day. His first child with Bathsheba became ill. And he prayed that God would heal this child. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. He wept. He put on sackcloth, which was a symbol of great sorrow. And he continually cried out to the Lord. And then he received word that his child had died. His advisors didn't even want to tell him because they knew how upset he had been while this child had been sick. His advisors didn't want to tell him because they were afraid of how it would impact him. While he was likely heartbroken over it, upon hearing the no from the Lord, he recognized it was time to get up, clean himself up, and move forward. I encourage you, pray that God would move in mighty ways. And believe that he is the one who can answer those prayers. And I don't know what you're facing today, but I will guarantee you God is bigger than whatever it is. Pray. If you don't get the answer today, pray again tomorrow. And as long as there is hope, as long as there is opportunity, continue to pray. In David's case, it didn't change the fact that God was absolutely David's best and greatest hope. The same is true for you and me. The reason we ask fervently with persistence is because we know that God can do things that no one else can do. Well, let's continue with the parable back in Luke chapter 11. And this time we begin in verse 9. It says this, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But how can this be? Because as I hear this passage, we just got through talking about the fact that sometimes the answer is going to be no. But this passage seems to suggest that if you ask for it, you will get it. In fact, there are those in the Christian world who have made a living off of this mindset. It's the name it and claim it people that if you call it out, God has to give it to you. They've emphasized verses like Matthew 21, verse 22, which says, If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. They've used passages like the one in our story today to build their whole theology around. And I want to be clear that 
these verses are still very much true in Matthew and in Luke, but they must always be kept within the context of the whole of Scripture. It's actually pretty easy to take something out of context. In fact, consider James 4.2 just for a moment as an example of this, and it fits with the discussion. I've heard pastors quote this verse saying, you do not have because you do not ask God. And that is exactly what the verse says. But it's only a part of what verse 2 says. Listen to it in its entirety. And actually, I'll include verses 1 and 3 as well. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now here's something to think about from that passage. When has murder ever been acceptable to the Lord? What about coveting? What about quarreling? The message of this passage is not that you can ask for anything and you're guaranteed to get it. The message of this passage is that your heart is not right with God. You've got a sin problem that exists here. You're acting selfishly. You're living in sin. And the thought of asking God for help doesn't even cross your mind because you think you can figure it all out on your own. You can take it into your own hands and you can make things happen. When actually the best thing we could ever do is to turn to the Lord in the midst of our needs. But it's easy for us to twist the scripture to say whatever we want it to say. And many have done that with this passage as well. So how do we read this passage in its proper context? My mind immediately goes back to Jesus's prayer in the garden. He knew that his time on earth was drawing to an end. He knew that in the coming hours and days, that he would endure incredible abuse and betrayal. He knew that within the next 24 hours, Jesus would be crucified on a tree to pay the price for all of humanity. And in the very moment of his death, we are told that darkness would fill the sky as the father would turn his back on the suffering son. All of this would have been agonizing and dreadful. And so Jesus prayed. He knows what's about to happen. My father, if it be possible, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, he adds, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus longs to avoid the impending agony and he prays for it. But it's that last phrase that is so important as we pray. Not as I will, not my will be done, but yours. What he's saying is, Father, you know what I want, but it's up to you. 
And if this is what I must go through, then I'll do it. Now, here's a thought with regard to this statement. If Jesus, the Son of God, the one who hears our prayers, if Jesus had to pray in this way with a sense of surrender to his Father's will, then how much more so do we need to pray with that same heart? Or maybe we're smarter and more righteous than Jesus. Maybe as we pray, we've already thought everything through and we know that our way is the best way. God, you need to get on board with me. What a foolish idea. The reality is God knows much more than we do. Listen to the words of John in his first epistle. In 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15, we read, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. With audacity and boldness, we can ask, but he doesn't have to say yes. He knows what is best for us. And we must trust that he is wiser than we are, even if he has to say no. I've often viewed this as a puzzle. How many of y'all like to do puzzles? I like to do puzzles. I remember growing up, we would do puzzles quite often. We'd have them sitting on the table. You'd come in and there'd be a puzzle with a thousand pieces there. And usually they weren't completed. But what we would do is we'd go back to them. Eventually, we would try to finish each of those puzzles kind of picture our prayer life sometime as we are looking at one puzzle piece. And to us, it makes all the sense in the world that if God's going to do something, he is going to do what we think is best. But here's the problem. We see that one puzzle piece and God's looking at this huge 50,000 piece puzzle. He's looking, he's saying, but you don't understand the rest of the story. So often when we pray, we are asking for God to do something that fits very well with that one piece that we have. But God says, I've got a much bigger picture for you to consider. And this can be hard for us to grab hold of sometimes, especially when we have to face some very unpleasant things. I try not to talk about it too often. But when Linda and I experienced the death of our second child, it was very hard for me to accept God's no. We had prayed for God to heal our child. We had prayed that God would prove the doctors wrong, but he did not. Was God somehow incapable of fixing my child? I know that the answer to that question is absolutely not. Those are still the thoughts that did go through my mind back then. And then one day it suddenly hit me, what if God was protecting my family? Now that's hard to imagine. You're talking about losing a child. What if God was protecting my family and specifically even this child from something far worse? Maybe God knew something that I did not know. I prayed for something because I saw my little piece of the puzzle. 
I thought, if anything, God, you, you got to see this too. But for all I know, he was looking at a much bigger puzzle than me. My guess is I'm not the only person to have asked questions like this. Maybe it was a loved one that you had that died of cancer or some other ugly disease. Maybe it was the loss of a job. Regardless of what it was, in that moment you knew what was best, at least in your mind. But maybe God could see something that you could not. I have a friend who was so distraught off over the loss of a job. His company was not ideal, but he made good money. And now, due to some cutbacks, he would need to find another job. In frustration, he cried out to the Lord, asking that God would somehow save his job. God did not. Instead, he ended up starting his own business, doing something that he loves, and earning far more money than he ever did in his previous job. When we sat down and talked about it, I so appreciated his perspective. This is what he said. I never would have left that job unless the Lord forced me out of it. I guess God really knew what was best for me. That is the mindset that each of us needs as we seek the Lord's will. We need to trust that he longs to give us good things. And the question that each of us must ask is not about whether we are getting what we want, the question that we should be asking is, are we getting what we need? So let me close with the question I started with today. What is important to you? My hope is at the top of your wish list that you will find a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Man, I want you all to be successful. I want you all to be happy. I want you to have nice families. I want you to have all the blessings that you could ever ask for. But I'm telling you, if you do not have a right relationship with Jesus Christ, then you still are lacking the most important thing. What is it that is most important to you? The disciples were seeking a right relationship with the Father. And that is where we need to begin as well. But I also do pray that as you experience that intimacy with him, that his wisdom and blessing will be poured out on you. And there's nothing wrong with you going to the Lord and asking him to do things that you need. What a great resource he is. You're talking about the king of kings, the one who created heaven and earth, and you can come boldly before the throne of God and ask him to meet your needs. Do you realize how awesome that is? I mean, that is a privilege. Imagine you know a king or you know a president personally and whatever's going on in your life, you can call him and you can say, hey, can you help out with this situation? I got a problem and I, I think you can take care of it. Well, you have someone far greater than a king or a president. You have the king of kings and he has made himself available to you. So I encourage you, bring your needs before him. But don't just come looking for his hand. Here's a principle I want you to catch today. Man, it is so good that we can come looking for his hand. God, what can you give? What can you do? But we ought to be seeking his face to know who he is. I encourage you to get to know him personally so that when that moment of crisis takes place, it won't be the first time you've talked to him. 
How ought you to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. And I hope that you will pray in that way that allows God to be the most important thing in your life and then let him take care of the rest of it. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we're so grateful for the lesson that you gave to your disciples that as they, as they prayed, it was an opportunity to draw near to you. They prayed to a holy just, righteous God, one who loves them more than life itself. Father, today, that's who we pray to. Thank you for the many answers to prayer. Thank you that as we call out to you, that we know you are there. Thank you for the many ways that you've worked in our lives already. Lord, I pray that you do more. But I pray more than anything that we would know you better than we even know ourselves Father, I pray that you would help us to seek you out with an urgency, recognizing that it is a privilege to call upon the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I pray for each one who is here today, Lord, that you would be so real to us. You'd be more than the genie in a bottle, but rather you would be the one who, man, you, you love us, and it's so evident in everything you've done for us. Help us to recognize that. Lord, you are so gracious, and we just say thank you today. Give us a hunger for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you, that hunger for God needs to grow. You say, well, I don't know, I got a pretty good hunger. No, you need more. We all do. And maybe the first place to begin, let's spend some time with the Lord in prayer today. Thank you for being here this morning. If you would, come back next week. Go in peace.